Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the eighth of nine Beatitudes, and this is the heaviest. I mean, Jesus is openly admitting that injustice is happening to other people, and it's happening right then and there. Intolerance is present in the community. People are suffering every day. And it's happening to the people who are trying to live what they believe is true, even in the face of oppression. And Jesus is put a, putting a spotlight on them. And he's saying to the oppressed, I see you. I feel your pain. You're being treated as if this world cannot be your home. As if you're the threat to everyone else. But I say unto you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus sees the struggle that living in this world can bring. So he blesses those who are actively being persecuted. I've had a thought for a long time. It's been stirring in me for a while, and I want to share it. What amazes me right now about the human condition, about human beings, is how much we live in fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the other. Fear of not having enough. And here's why I'm thinking of this. People who are persecuted are victims of someone else's fear. And that someone is usually the one in power. And they are scared to death to lose their power. So they hurt others who can't hurt them. They oppress powerless people. And they do it out of fear. And I think Jesus knows all of this. And yet he still sees these people who are trying to live righteously and peaceably and nonviolently and meek. And even in the face of oppression, Jesus knows that they're choosing to live out of love. And he blesses them for it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this beatitude very well could be saying, blessed are the people who don't let fear get the best of them. Blessed are those who choose God's kingdom over Caesar's, even in the face of persecution. Blessed are those people. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus knows a thing or two about being persecuted and still choosing to live in the world righteously. Take, for instance, Luke chapter 2. Jesus stands in the synagogue, pulls out the scroll from prophet Isaiah, and he begins to interpret Isaiah's call for justice for the poor. When Jesus sits down, the crowd goes nuts. They denounce him publicly. They become enraged. They push him to the edge of a cliff, and they try to kill him by throwing him off of it. He barely escapes with his life. In Mark's Gospel, the very first time that Jesus heals a sick person, the religious authorities lose it, and they start plotting his murder from the very beginning. In the Gospel of John, over 25 times, Jesus is given a death threat. 
He is constantly under fire from the religious authorities who think him to be demonic. Jesus knows all about persecution. And in the face of it, he still chooses to live nonviolently, to be a loving, peaceable presence. He chooses to be meek, and he blesses those who choose the same path. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In modern history, the three most publicly persecuted figures that I can think of, and these three are highly debatable, completely subjective, it's not an exhaustive list, but when I think of people who lived their life righteously, chose to live nonviolently, but were persecuted for the way they lived anyway, Gandhi. Martin Luther King Jr., Oscar Romero. Did you know that Gandhi knew his killers for decades before they killed him? And yet he still taught nonviolence. Now, if you don't know, he was murdered because certain Hindus hated his nonviolent teachings because Gandhi had the audacity to tell Hindus that their nonviolence should also move over to Muslims. So there was a group of radical Hindus that shot him three times in the chest from point-blank range at 78 years old. Martin Luther King Jr. received death threats from the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott until the day of his assassination in Memphis. His house was bombed in Montgomery, he was stabbed in Harlem, he was punched in Selma. The daily persecution that he endured is beyond anything we could comprehend. And yet every day he taught nonviolence. He preached nonviolence. Oscar Romero is another name. If you have never heard of him, he was the Archbishop of El Salvador in the 70s, and he faced regular death threats. The Salvadorian government was heinously attacking and torturing their own people. Routinely, they would just kidnap groups of people, and they would disappear, and nobody would know where they went. And then the government controlled the news and the radios. And for years, these actions were covered up. But Romero was the archbishop of the Catholic Church. And he was given an hour to preach on the radio and the whole country would listen every single week. So Romero started naming the atrocities of what was occurring in their country. Salvadorians started waking up to the horrors happening to the communities around them. And on March 23, 1980, in Romero's last sermon, he spoke directly to the government, the death squads, the soldiers, and he said, I order you to stop this repression. The next day, the government entered in the middle of mass and shot him killed him during the middle of a worship service. By the way, he's a saint now. Pope Francis made that happen in 2018. The deaths of martyrs like Gandhi and King and Romero, they seem to have been predicted by Jesus. Jesus knew the consequences of what public service and work would entail. 
If you push against the fear of the powerful with a message of nonviolence and equality and love, you're going to be persecuted for it. People in power rarely give up their power when they're confronted with love and truth, especially if they're operating out of fear. Several years ago, I came across a lecture about what I would argue one of the most world-renowned Christian voices today, Father Richard Rohr, another Catholic priest, Franciscan. He runs the Center for Action and Contemplation in, in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I quote him a lot. I just think he's fantastic. So what I'm about to share with you, I think it has the capacity to heal those who are led by fear. And I think it has the capacity to help us understand why it is people persecute others. And then if you're being persecuted, how you can stay the course nonviolently. So, at least what I'm about to say, it at least helps me understand how worldviews like this can unfold. It's called the cosmic egg. Now, I introduced this idea very, very briefly back in July, and I want to take it a step further today. The cosmic egg has three layers of significance. An egg has the yolk, an egg white, and then the outer shell. And each layer, it helps us understand the connection and interplay between what Rohr calls my story, our story, the story. And each one of these layers matter. No one part of the egg is the egg alone. It's the interplay between the yolk and the egg white and the shell. And that makes sense. The yolk, that inner core layer, that's my story. The individuation of my personhood, my gifts, my insights, my ability to affect change and to act in the world. But it's also where my fears lie, where my failures sit, where my pain is held. The second layer, the egg white, that's our story. This is our communities that we connect with, our families, our identities that are bound up in harmony with one another. But it's also the place where our cliques are, our family drama or our communal laments. My story and our story are very similar, but they are different. Think of it like this. What makes you, you? And then what makes us, us? Then there's the outer layer of the egg, the shell. The thinnest, most crackable part of the egg. It's what Rohr calls the story. The things in the world that are always true, always beautiful, and always good. They're always a part of the ultimate design of God's kingdom on earth. And that's the egg. And you can play with it any way you would like. There's a lot of ways to hold it and see the dynamism between the three. But what I find to be the most helpful with this image is that each part of the egg have both a positive and a negative reality. It's like the true and the false self. All of us need a good my story. 
We all need to learn to self-actualize and to self-differentiate. We all need to pursue life, making something of ourselves, knowing that our individual stories, my story, it matters. My personhood is good. I am made in the image and likeness of God. And my experiences, my knowledge base, my testimony, it belongs in this world. Trauma survivors have a story to tell. And we need to give space for them to be able to tell it. There are minority groups and women, and honestly, every single person in this world has a my story. And it needs the space to be told and to be reflected on. But there's a dark side to this yoke, too. It's possible for us to get too fixated on my story. And we get into an unhealthy imbalance with our or the story. You can become too insular, too much of a loner. You can become too narcissistic or too self-obsessed. You can get so focused on what is me and mine that you begin to lose sight and awareness of what is ours. To break free of that, you need a healthy balance between the yolk and the egg white. You need to hold our story. We are all connected to one another. We're connected through community. We're connected through church here at First Baptist and Waynesboro and school systems and family systems and ball teams and service groups. The communities that we are in, they give shape and they help hold a framework for our story. My story is always written within the framework of our story. But that can be bad, too. If we aren't careful, we can forget that there are other our stories that we aren't a part of. And we can mistake in my story for the only our story. As if our experience should be the experience of everyone always. And that's where persecution lies. Oppressed people are oppressed because some group who is more privileged and more powerful out of fear, they mistaken their my story for what everyone's our story should be. And they did everything they could do to insulate and to validate themselves. It's utterly fear-based, but it happens all the time. And to break free of that, you have to have a healthy balance of the egg's shell, this thinly, easily breakable outer edge that holds all of us together. For the cosmic egg, this is the ultimate story, God's story in the world. And what exists at this level are those things that are always inherently beautiful, inherently true and good. Things like love and forgiveness, justice, and mercy and grace, these are the load-bearing pillars of God's story. And so that's the cosmic egg. I just love it. You should play with the dynamism of how these three layers interact. There's a lot to explore, and I hope it's helpful to you. There is no one layer more important than the other. All three layers can be distorted if they're out of balance with the other. 
We need a healthy balance of my story and our story and the story. Now you may be wondering, this is fascinating, Barrett, but how does this apply to the Beatitudes? If it feels like I need to course correct, here's my answer. The Beatitudes show us what is beautiful, true, and good about the kingdom of God. They hold up the ultimate story of life, reminding us that we all have a place within the kingdom of God, especially those who don't have a place in Caesar's kingdom. And so what does the cosmic egg have to do with those who are constantly persecuting? People who do the persecuting, they've lost sight of the story. And Jesus knows this, and he calls them out for it. Eventually, he does, if you continue to read the Gospels. But right now in Matthew 5.10, he's looking at the people who are being persecuted, who are on the losing end of oppression, and he's saying, this persecution you feel right now it won't be here in God's realm. You have a place in the story of life. God is unfolding something, and you're going to be here to see it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And that's what I want you to see. Our culture is a self-obsessed culture. We are narcissistic at every level. We're a workaholic culture. We care very deeply about my story. And we care very deeply about somewhat of our story. But it's usually at the detriment of God's story. And people are being persecuted because of it. We need to be reminded that God, since we were children, has loved every one of us, provided for every one of us, fed and nurtured and held and forgiven every one of us and has given us an example to follow in Jesus Christ. That's the story that needs to be offered to everyone. We need to reclaim that which is beautiful, true, and good in the world. And we need to share it, especially with those who are being oppressed and persecuted because they have every right in the world to live as authentically as we feel we have the right to as well. But until that day, in the meantime, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.